She was the richest merchant in all of Mecca, with a wealth said to equal more than all the others combined. And she would risk it all by being the first person to convert to Islam. A 7th century woman merchant whose wealth was partially responsible for the survival and the spread of Islam. We are talking about Khadija bint Khawailid, and she's known by some as the mother of believers. And she's our subject on the golden age of Islam today. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. I hope you're all doing well, and hopefully we're getting to the end of the pandemic here. Uh, today, on this episode, we're going to go much further back in history uh, to the beginning of where we started to talk about a significant person we didn't discuss much earlier. Now, when I started this series, I wasn't thinking 60 episodes ahead or really thinking about what would happen at that time. So we went quite quick through the uh, foundations. Uh, But now that we've got so many episodes under our belt and we've covered a lot of history, uh, it's time to go back and look at some points in more detail. So we're breaking from chronological order, and we'll be doing that for a while here, and going back to look at some very significant names in the history of Islam. And one subject that always comes up for debate is the role of women in Islam. This is one of the most controversial topics out there. And when that subject does come up, one of the first names to be mentioned is usually that of Khadija bint Khawailid, who was the first wife of the Prophet Muhammad. And you're going to see as we discuss her today, there's a lot of reasons why um, she is a good first person to discuss. Uh, Her life sort of challenges a lot of stereotypes that are out there about Islam, both within and outside of Islam. Okay, so you will probably not be surprised to hear there is a lot of controversy about the life of the wife of the Prophet and about the children that she and the Prophet Muhammad had. And, of course, a lot of this is due to historical sources and gaps in those sources, things we just don't have information for. But much of it is controversial because of the Sunni-Shia divide. So as we go through this, you're going to hear a lot of times I'll be saying that, well, the Sunnis believe this and the Shias believe this. So the life of Khadija and her marriage with the Prophet, um, there's almost two versions to just about everything that happens with them. But hopefully, as we go through that, you'll start to see the patterns develop and it will be clear why that is. Um, You know, the basic reason for a lot of these differences is that, of course, lineage is extremely important, particularly in Shiism, as we have discussed, and I know it's it's been a while, so, and maybe you're not getting these episodes in um, the order they were published, I know how that is, you get them on your phone, um, however many load up, so... If not, you'd have to go back to episode number four, where we discussed the Sunni-Shia split, if you want to review that. And even if you're not fresh on that, I would recommend doing that, because um, that's going to be important to what we're discussing here. And also, as I discussed back in that episode, I think most attempts to explain the Sunni-Shia split are really not helpful. They get bogged down on technicalities, and they miss what were the big motivations behind the split and the big differences. So anyway, having shamelessly plugged that one episode, uh, we'll get back to this one. But as I said, lineage always plays a big role in Islam. But of course, it's central to Shiism. It's arguably the biggest thing in Shiism that sets it apart. 
Um, so assuming you didn't just run out and listen to episode four again, uh, just to recap, the lineage of Ali, uh, the uh, son-in-law of the prophet, Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, is key to Shiism. This is where the lineage for all the imams comes from. And the fact that Ali is married to the Prophet's daughter Fatima and produces his grandchildren is critically important for the Shia lineage. This is how the Imams have a lineage back to the Prophet. And so therefore, the position of the Prophet's other children and their offspring, or the lack thereof, becomes extremely important for establishing the uniqueness of Ali and Fatima. Right, the idea that they have the only line of legitimate descendants of the prophet, that means they have a central role. If there are others, if there are other children, then this sort of um, weakens that. So the bottom line here is how many children that the prophet Muhammad and Khadija had, what they did, um, this becomes a major bone of contention for either supporting or detracting the Shiite claims. Uh, and of course, we're not going to try and settle that. Uh, so this is why you're going to hear two versions of a lot of things that happen in this story. Anyway, that's a very long digression, uh, but I point this out just to bear in mind as we go through this. It's not just that we, you know, there's de debate among historians. Uh, there are strong narratives supporting each of these versions. Anyway, um, all of the names we're going to talk about today, though, are very famous, and they mean different things to different people, and that's something to bear in mind. Okay, so that's a long introduction, and we haven't really started anything yet. So, we're talking today about Khadija bin Khuwayla. Uh, she was born 15 years before the Prophet. Even this fact is disputed. Uh, some say it was five years, but generally the older figure is, is the one that most people believe. Uh, she was a distant cousin, which is to say she was a member of the Quraysh tribe of Mecca, as are most of the people in this story. Uh, Khadija had been widowed twice before she met Muhammad. Uh, both of her husbands died in the intertribal wars, which were very common at this time. Um, the point being here that she did not want to get married a third time, and she was certainly um, did not want the very real possibility of being widowed a third time. Okay, now, of course, a lot of stereotypes um, circulate about women in Arab culture. Um, and, you know, one of those is that they, they need a man to survive, a woman can't survive on her own. Uh, but in the case of Khadija, for sure, she definitely didn't need to get married again. Um, she was independently wealthy, and she stood actually very little to gain from this marriage. Uh, she was a major businesswoman and one of the wealthiest in Quraysh. Now it's said, some of the stories say that she was as wealthy, her business was as big as all the other merchants of Mecca put together. And of course the whole main business of Mecca was trade. I mean that's what the, the word has come to mean. Okay, so uh, you know some of that may be exaggerated but she was certainly certainly quite wealthy. Um, now, of course, Mecca didn't produce a lot of its own, but they were on the trade routes coming from Yemen, coming from Africa, coming from the Indian Ocean on one side, and then going up to Syria, Egypt, and the Mediterranean on the other side. So I mean, spices coming from China going to Europe would come through there. And Khadija was a big player in this, in the, the business of long-distance trade. Uh, her trade caravans were said to be the biggest that ran from Mecca. Okay, so obviously there are a lot of implied messages right there. Right, First, just the fact that a woman could have her own business. Uh, secondly, that she could be as powerful as the men. And last, she wasn't hiding away behind the scenes, letting a man stand in front for her. She was obviously very 
prominent. Uh, this was a big business. She had to make a lot of connections. She had a lot of people working uh, for her, and she had connections to people hundreds of miles away. So this is obviously going against the stereotypes that we often hear. And uh, like, unlike a lot of the points in this historical record, those facts seem to be pretty much accepted by everyone. Okay, but that is not all. Uh, what we do know is that Muhammad first came to the attention of Khadija because of his reputation for honesty and integrity. Now, he was not a merchant himself. He didn't have any experience in long-distance trade, as far as we can tell. But what a lot of historians think is that this was a boom time for trade in Mecca. Obviously, it, you know, it went up and down depending on the conditions in the world. And so this was like a, a big boom, and so there were a lot more caravans going out. Someone like Khadija would have to send out more caravans, more frequently, larger caravans. And so you had to recruit people to work on them. And so that explains why she would hire a person who didn't grow up in, in the long-distance trade business and didn't have any experience but was someone you could trust. So this is how we get to that point. And this fits with all the narratives that we know about the prophet prior to him becoming a prophet. Uh, he already had a reputation in Mecca as a mediator, uh, settling disputes. There's the famous story of how he was chosen... Uh, to settle the dispute about who would place the the black stone, the cornerstone, in the Kaaba. So, I mean, there's ample logical reasons to see why this would be someone that she would turn to to lead one of her caravans uh, going up to Syria. Okay, so, it's said that at age 25, the prophet Muhammad who's not a prophet at this point, is hired by Khadija, who is then age 40, to lead the caravan to Syria. And it's said that he's been up there once before with his uncle. And there are a number of stories surrounding this caravan. Uh, and a lot of it is indirect reports that eventually uh, filter back. And, you know, some of these are stories, legends, traditions, and so forth. In one incident that's pretty famous, uh, Muhammad had stopped in the city of Busra, which is on the road to Damascus, and he was um, sitting under a, a tree, but it was in the sun, and he was observed there by a Christian monk named Nestor. And, of course, at this time, Syria is Christian. And Nestor is said to have observed Muhammad sitting in the sun, and the monk saw angels shading him from the sun. And he said, um, quote, He is surely the very last prophet. Congratulations to whomever believes in him. Which, of course, Muhammad didn't know at the time. He didn't know he was going to be a prophet. And so Nestor passed this information on to someone he knew, and this eventually uh, filters back to Khadija, who, of course, has this big network, and she hears it. Now, later on, many years later, when Muhammad re receives his first revelation, the first person he's going to tell is his wife Khadija, and she is going to recount this story to him to tell him, see, here's this uh, Christian monk who said years ago that you were the last prophet, and now you're getting the message. So this is further support. Now, there are a lot of stories like that. Uh, what we do know, and this I have mentioned in earlier episodes, is that on this trip to Syria, uh, Muhammad saw the divisions going on between the Christian denominations, which were quite harsh. I mean, we're not just talking about, um, you know, disputes. We're talking about there were persecutions, there were um, people being killed uh, because of the big theological disputes that were going on. And he was struck by this, and he was struck by the lack of consensus. And he was especially struck by the disagreements on the scriptures, uh, which you know during the, the first three centuries of Christianity, uh, there was no consensus on Christian scriptures. But even after that, um, even after each church decides on their own, there's still... Uh, some some pretty violent and nasty disputes about this. So anyway, he could see all this. He could see the power of 
the Christian church. I mean, they had these huge uh, churches, right? They had, they had this huge infrastructure that tied everything together, and this was the one thing that held this empire together. But, man, they were divided on all these points, and they were especially divided on their scriptures, which, of course, is going to have a very big impact on um, how the scriptures are recorded in Islam. In any case, uh, Muhammad does a very good job leading this caravan, and it's said that he brought back double the profits that Khadija expected, which is, I guess, a pretty good thing if you're a CEO. Now, the next connection between these two is uh, Khadija's cousin, Waraka ibn Naufal, who we've mentioned before, and he becomes very important. Um, in some accounts, he's Khadija's uncle. some accounts, he's a cousin. Uh, but in all the cases, he is some kind of Christian, but he's definitely not a member of the, the dominant Orthodox Christianity of the Byzantines, which is you know, what's being practiced in Syria and what is, is eventually um, taking over all the other sects. Uh, in fact, there were a great many sects in the area. Uh, the further you got away from uh, the Byzantine Empire, and many of them were being brutally suppressed or forced to incorporate into the, the main church. But in Arabia, they were far enough away. And so Wadaka is from uh, one of these sects. There's there's dispute about which one he's from, but he's from a, a non-traditional Christian sects, not one of the big ones that we would uh, recognize. Uh, it's said that he translated the Bible from Hebrew into Arabic. Okay, um, so this is what he is. The point is, though, he's a monotheist, and he observed Muhammad as a young man. He heard the uh, reports about him from Khadija's agents, and he commented that he had the behavior of a prophet. Now, this is not as definite as uh, what Nestor the monk said. Um, but he definitely commented that um, Muhammad acted like a prophet. And um, when Muhammad does receive the first revelations, uh, the first person Khadija brings him to is Waraka, uh, because, hey, he's a monotheist, maybe he can tell us something. And he is the first one who confirms that he's a prophet. Um, and then Waraka dies shortly thereafter. Okay, so... All this is before they get married, um, the, the initial reports from, from Waraka are be, uh, before they get married. Okay, so the point is Khadija's hearing from a lot of people, from her employers, from her relatives, about the great conduct, the exceptional nature of this man, uh, that there's something special about him, and they convince her to marry him, although she didn't really want to get married again, as we said. But she proposes marriage to him, and, you know, as I said, this goes against stereotypes, but she's the one with the money. She proposes marriage um, to Muhammad, and he's initially concerned because she's got so much more money than he does, but she says it's okay. So, again, we're, we're turning over a lot of stereotypes here. Um, you know, she's going to be the breadwinner in this relationship. She, her wealth is going to be the one that sustains the family. And, of course, she was his boss. And, of course, this is cited as a model. Uh, you know, if the prophet himself did not dominate and oppress his wife, you know, um, you know quite obviously they were, were equals, at least. And, I mean, she had a lot of freedom. She had a lot of power. Then no other Muslim man should do this. Um, but... You know, people people find ways to justify uh, whatever they want. But, I mean, this is even their relationship before the beginning of Islam is cited as an example of, okay, here's the conduct of the prophet towards a woman, and this is what good conduct towards a woman should be. Okay. So that's a lot. And this much is basically agreed upon. This much is pretty much um, accepted. When it comes to the other details of the life of Khadija, and again, many of the early Muslims and the early companions, um, a lot is more tradition. We're, you know, it's what we hear and we're not exactly sure of. So, for example, 
Khadija, like a great many of these early companions, is said to have been a Hanifa. And what that means is a Hanif is someone who is said to be a monotheist, someone who worshipped the correct, pure monotheism established by Abraham. Um, they're not Christians and they're not Jews. And what they're trying to um, establish here is that, of course, Abraham was the first one, I mean, the, the first, you know, the father of monotheism as we know it. Uh, we know he went to Arabia. He is said to have gone to Mecca. This is why the Hajj uh, goes there and he establishes monotheism. Well, then, of course, we get Judaism develops from that, and then um, Christianity develops. And the important thing is that Islam is not, at least theologically and officially, seeing itself as a development out of Christianity and Judaism, but a development out of that original monotheism. And so it's said that there are those who stayed to the monotheism of Abraham, not to um, the Judaism that would develop in the Bible, but stayed to the original monotheism that Abraham established, and these are known as the Hanifs. Um, how many of them there were is very controversial and very hard to determine you know it's one of these things that's sort of retroactively applied so when we read the accounts man I mean you would think almost everybody was a Hanif but I mean it, it does seem that to the extent that these people were there uh, there were very few but anyway because of course Khadija is going to be so important uh, it's said that she is is a Hanif that, that's the tradition okay uh, which means she didn't worship idols. Now this, of course, is difficult to discern because we know that Mecca was the major center of pagan worship. Uh, because it was the trade hub, this is where everybody came, and so this was also the hub of pagan worship. Uh, the main god was Hubal, who was a Syrian god, or some say a Nabataean sun god. Um, there were some references to Allah, as the creator god, but we know, for example, that in the Kaaba, in Mecca, there were 360 idols, 360 different idols of different pagan gods that all the different tribes brought there. And this was one of the big businesses of the Quraysh tribe, was running this shrine. And so... Again, when, of course, when Muhammad starts preaching monotheism and when Khadija joins him, they, they become persecuted and she's essentially going to lose her business because of this. And so when you sort of piece that together, it's hard to understand how she could have been a practicing Hanifa, you know, a, a, essentially a practicing monotheist and still have been so hugely powerful and influential in business, uh, but then when she started preaching Islam or following Islam, which is monotheism, you know, everything falls apart. So anyway, uh, I say it's tradition, and there's a lot of controversy about this. Uh, but the point is they want to minimize any suggestion of paganism uh, for Khadija. Okay, so once the revelation does begin... That's in the year uh, 610. Uh, Khadija is the first one to accept it and uh, believe the prophet, and she becomes the first Muslim. Quote, we'll discuss that. Um, but they have been married since the year 595. So that means there were 15 years of marriage before the prophetic mission begins. So what happened in that time? This is where things get very controversial. look at those 15 intervening years. Uh, the prophet had seven children in total. Six of those were with Khadija. 
Although he had 13 wives, uh, six out of his seven children were with his first wife, Khadija. Now, infant mortality was very high in Arabia at this time, very high. Uh, so only four of those children survived into adulthood. And all four who survived were daughters, and this is one of the things that's going to complicate the lineage, as we'll see. Uh, but let's look at, at who they were. Uh, the first child they had was Qasim. He was a son. Uh, he was born in the year 598, and he died uh, three years later, in year 601. And this, again, this is now nine years before Muhammad became a prophet. So uh, the son, Qasim, died as a toddler uh, and was never alive when Muhammad was a prophet. Uh, their second child was Zainab. Uh, she was born a year later, and that name may be much more familiar to you. And this is because she would live for 30 years she would have two children and a number of grandchildren, and then so on. She would have descendants after that. And, of course, she, she lived well into the prophethood of uh, Muhammad. So she becomes an important figure. Uh, Zainab married a cousin, Abu al-As, uh, sometime before Muhammad's prophethood started. Not exactly. Um, there's no agreement on that. Um, but she became a Muslim almost immediately after Muhammad received his first revelations. Now, Abu al-As did not, um, so he, he remains a pagan. Uh, nonetheless, they stayed married even though uh, the pagan Quraysh tribe, to which Abu al-As uh, belonged and he was an important member of, uh, they pressured him to divorce her. You're, you're one, you know, she's one of these. She's one of these new Muslims. So they, they wanted him to divorce her. He refused to do this. And we have to remember at this point, in the early days, the Muslims were definitely the weak side. They were a minority, and they were persecuted. The Quraysh, who will go on to essentially be the, the core of Islam, uh, for the early years, they were the enemy. They were the reasons that we had to migrate out of Mecca and go to Medina. And so they're trying to get um, Abu al-As to divorce Zainab, the daughter of um, the prophet. Now, there are several stories that come up over the intervening years that show the loyalty uh, of these two to each other, despite the fact they're on different sides. And it shows that Muhammad respected and honored Abu al-As for you know, staying married to Zainab despite the pressure. Uh, now, eventually, right near the end of his life, Abu al-As does convert to Islam, uh, but Zainab dies very shortly uh, after that. And you know, sadly, she dies in uh, from a hemorrhage, which is said to have been caused uh, when she was attacked. Well, when she, during the time she was pregnant, she was trying to leave Mecca for Medina. Her caravan was attacked, um, and this, you know, caused some damage. And later on, she died of a hemorrhage. So, uh, the point is, um, these two were both Muslims, and they were both married. But it was for a very short time uh, when they were in that condition. Okay. So, now is where it gets kind of tricky, because as we know, the Shia are going to trace their lineage through Fatima. And Fatima, uh, she becomes the wife of Ali, that's um, why she's important, and Ali becomes the first imam, and their descendants become the, the imams. So this is very important. The problem is that Fatima is the fourth and the youngest of the Prophet's daughters. Uh, and as we, you know, we just talked about, uh, Zainab had children as well, and they do not trace the lineage uh, through Zainab, through her kids. And so Shiite tradition holds that only Fatima is the, uh, the daughter of Khadija and Muhammad. They say that the other three daughters, who all live to adulthood, uh, the other three daughters are from Khadija's prior marriages. Remember, she was married twice. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, they're not Muhammad's children at all, and therefore, they're not, not in the lineage at all. I mean, it's nice, it's nice they were early Muslims, and they're, they're to be respected, but uh, their kids, their descendants don't have any uh, lineage. 
Now, of course, to get that timeline to work out, they have to have a different date for the marriage of Khadijah and the Prophet, and they, they date her age differently. So they have to change. You end up with a completely different narrative. But this is because of the importance of the daughter Fatima. Um, essentially, you have to have the other three daughters before her not be part of that uh, lineage. Uh, as I said, we're not here to resolve those disputes according to Sunnis, all of those children are the children of Khadija and the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, there are more records to support this, but that kind of makes sense because uh, Sunnis won the early battle, so they were sort of writing the history. Okay, um, now, now the Shiites, of course, I mean, are not without their evidence as well. So one of the pieces of evidence they offer to support this claim uh, that the the first three daughters are not daughters of the Prophet is a hadith. Of course, a hadith is a reputed saying of the Prophet. Uh, there's a hadith when, which the Prophet says that his daughters can only marry men from uh, the Banu Hashim, which is the Hashemites. This is the, the uh, sons of Hashem. This is the sub-clan within Quraysh, from which the prophet comes, and I mean, being a Hashemi is very important, like the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. They trace their lineage uh, back to, to the prophet. Um, so, okay, so Zainab, uh, she was not married to a Hashemite. Uh, her husband, Abu al-As, he was a Qureshi, but he was not a Hashimi. And so uh, the same is true of the, the other daughters, uh, Ruqayya and Om Kulthum, uh, both of whom would marry Uthman, who was the third caliph. Okay, so what the, the Shia are saying is that um, since the Prophet, according to them, they believe this hadith where the Prophet says, my daughters can only marry someone who is a Hashemite. Well, the only one of his daughters who marries a Hashemite is um, Fatima, who marries Ali. So, therefore, this must prove that the other three daughters, he let marry other guys, so obviously um, they weren't actually his daughters. Uh, and this is, again, another reason this hadith is important to Shia is, she remember, they have a big problem with Uthman having become the third caliph instead of Ali. I mean, they had a problem with all, all the first three, but particularly Uthman when he becomes the, the caliph instead of Ali. This was one of the major milestones that splits the Sunni and Shia. It's not the only one. And so, okay, here we have the fact that uh, the prophet marries off two of his supposed daughters or stepdaughters to Uthman, who's a guy they think is illegitimate to begin with because he's too far outside the um, the clan. So that proves it. He definitely wouldn't marry off his own daughter to this guy who they don't like. Of course, if you're a Sunni, um, you know, that is that is not an issue. They, of course, think Uthman uh, was good and he was rightly guided. Okay, well, uh, and we know, of course, the Sunnis are not going to take this approach because, number one, uh, they think Uthman was good. He, he's the guy they picked, so they don't have any problem with him. And later on, the big split is going to come uh, when... The people who become Sunnis essentially support Ma'awiyah, who is a relative of Uthman as caliph uh, against the descendants of Ali. And this is where the real split occurs. So, I mean, obviously they are not going to be holding up hadiths that's saying it's a, it's a bad thing to marry Uthman in the first place. But of course, uh, part of this issue is that none of the sons survived. Had Qasim who was the first child and who was also a son, had he lived to adulthood and had a lineage of children of his own, um, then the claims for hereditary leadership would have been much stronger and most likely would have gone through him. Okay, anyway, so that's that's a lot about Zainab, but you can see where, where Zainab becomes controversial. Uh, the second daughter of the Prophet Muhammad and Khadija was Ruqayya, 
who was probably born in the year 601 or 602, so we're still eight years before the prophetic mission begins. Uh, and she was married to Utba ibn Abi Lahab, who was actually the next-door neighbor of the family for some years. So they were a very close family, and they made this um, you know, arrangement, which was, which was common. Uh, she was eight years old when they were married, uh, and, and actually, the marriage was even a few months before Muhammad became uh, the prophet. So this seemed like a good thing. You know, these two families were cementing their uh, ties to each other. However, Abu Lahab, who is the, the father of her husband, the, the father of Utbah, uh, he's going to become one of the leading enemies of the Muslims. And in fact, I mean, his name is a, is a bad name. In fact, in the Quranic surah, surah 111, is about Abu Lahab, and it's not saying nice things about him. Um, it says he will be ruined, and he was, he was a rich guy. He was a merchant as well, and it says he's going to be ruined. Um, so as in the case with Abu al-As, there was a lot of pressure on Utbah to uh, divorce Ruqayah, but in this case, he does. Um, by the time she is 12 years old, they are divorced, and we are told that that marriage was not consummated. And we will leave it at that. But, I mean, yeah, she was 12 years old, so that's a pretty reasonable claim. And it shows, I mean, they were being married as, a, as an arrangement, as a family arrangement. It wasn't that they were in love or anything like that. Okay, so that marriage did not go so well. Uh, but next, she's going to marry Uthman, as we said, uh, Uthman ibn Affan, who we know is going to become the third caliph. Uh, Sunnis like him, uh, Shia do not. And uh, he's part of the group that goes into exile in Ethiopia, which is another whole famous story during the early persecution of the Muslims. Some take refuge in Ethiopia, which is a Christian uh, kingdom. They are protected by the Christian king there. It's actually Coptic Christian. Um, but the only child that Rukaya has dies, and she has a she has a child uh, by Uthman. Uh, but uh, the child dies, and Rukaya dies uh, very early. She dies at age uh, twenty three. Okay, so. There's, there's no lineage going through her, and again, it, it would have been a problem if there had been, uh, because then we'd have a lineage through Uthman, which would, you know, really create problems. Uh, the Shia would not be happy about that. Uh, and uh, for what it's worth, after Rukaya is dead, uh, Utbah, the guy who uh, divorced her, he eventually does convert to Islam, but it's, you know, much, much too late for, for that marriage. Now, okay, um, a year after Rukaya is born, Muhammad's third daughter is born, and uh, this is Om Kulthum. And although that name means the mother of Kulthum, uh, she never had any children. That's just a, a famous name. A lot of people have these names of Om and Abu who, who do not have children or they don't get them from their children. Um, that this is just her name, and this becomes a very popular name. Now, you may recognize that name uh, as the most famous Arabic singer out there. Certainly the most famous Egyptian singer is Om Kulthum, who was massively popular from the, the 1940s on into the 70s. Now, that, uh, that's not her real name either. Uh, her real name was Fatima el-Baltagi, and she changed her name. Her stage name was Om Kulthum, uh, and she took, uh, she took on long before she was married or had any children either. She was Om Kulthum, and she was not Om of anyone at that point. But that name, of course, is in honor of the prophet's daughter. All these names uh, become very uh, important. Uh, Sayyida Zainab is, is, uh, is a very important mosque. There's a lot of things named after Zainab. Uh, Om Kulthum uh, becomes a, a famous name that a lot of people take. And, and Fatima, of course, uh, becomes extremely, extremely popular. Um, so anyway, 
Oh, by the way, the, the singer Om Kulthum is said to have uh, a lineage tracing back to the prophet as well. But um, that, just so you know, n- neither one of them had a child named Kulthum. Uh, and by the way, by the way, just uh, interestingly enough, uh, Nagib Mahfouz, who is I mean, certainly the greatest modern Arabic writer, he's the only Arab writer to win the Nobel Prize, uh, he's Egyptian as well, uh, he had um, two daughters, one was called Fatima, and his other daughter is Om Kulthum. Again, she's not named after a child. It's, it's named after the, uh, the daughter of the prophet as well. Um, and just to make things a little bit more confusing, uh, Ali, who of course is going to marry Fatima and become the first Shia imam, uh, he had a daughter named Om Kulthum, and also the Khalif Abu Bakr, who was the first Sunni caliph who Shia think took the job from Ali, he has a daughter named Um Kulthum. So this is a, it becomes a very popular name, and it can become uh, very confusing uh, of whom we're talking about. Anyway, to get back to Um Kulthum, the daughter of the Prophet, who is the one we're, we're interested in at this point, she also married another son of Abu Lahab, um, and it worked out just about as well as Rukaya's marriage did. Uh, she was married as a child. She was divorced as a child for, I mean, the same reasons. Um, you know, her father-in-law convinced her, her husband, so to speak, uh, to divorce her. Okay, so anyway, uh, as we said, Rukaya, her second husband was Uthman, the caliph, Rukaya dies very young, um, so Uthman is a widower. He marries Om Kulthum, uh, but they end up having no children. Uh, and they're only married for five years before she dies as well. And in, in one hadith, and you can guess that this is a Sunni hadith and not a Shia hadith, uh, the Prophet says, If I had ten daughters, I would marry them all to Uthman. I mean, he married two out of four to Uthman. Uh, obviously, that's not what the Shia think. Um, the Shia think because he married them to Uthman, they could not have been his daughters. Okay. So anyway, uh, the, the bottom line of all of this is that all of these children would die before the prophet. None of the sons would live to adulthood, but even all of the daughters would die before the prophet Muhammad, except for Fatima. She's the only one who will outlive him, who will still be alive when he has died, and so you can see why her lineage becomes important. Turn to the story of Khadija. So, Muhammad used to retire to the cave of Hira, which is outside Mecca, it's still there, uh, to meditate for long periods. And it was in the year 610 that he received the first revelation from the angel Gabriel. And of course, the account of that story is quite terrifying as you know, angels in the Bible, in the Quran, are definitely not the cute things we see in cartoons, right? Um, so the story goes that Gabriel actually choked Muhammad until he agreed to recite, because, of course, Muhammad said he could not recite, he could not read. Anyway, the point is, he comes back from this experience very frightened and not quite sure oh, what has happened to him. I mean, you could think all sorts of things, right? Uh, so Khadija is the one who convinces him that this is a genuine revelation from God. And she has these stories that we mentioned before to support this. She has the stories she heard from the monk and so forth. So here again, it's an important role of a woman in the story. Uh, he depends on her counsel, on her wisdom, and her faith is the one that's strong. Okay, so when he comes back and he's shooken up, um, Khadija 
is strong, and she's the one who has heard the prophecies. Uh, so this prophecy that Muhammad is definitely the last prophet of God years before he begins his prophecy, uh, this comes through Khadijah. Okay. And so she can pass these on at the c- correct time, at the critical point, and confirm his mission. And of course, by doing so, she becomes the first convert. Now, to say that she's the first, quote, Muslim is not exactly accurate because it depends what you mean by that. So the word Muslim means one who submits to God. So all believers from the Bible all the way back to Adam would fall into that category. So she's not the first person to believe in God and to submit to God. But as we use the term today, Nowadays, when someone says they're a Muslim, it means, you know, they're someone who accepts the revelation to Muhammad, okay? So in this sense, she is. She's the first one to accept this revelation that is coming. And uh, Khadija is sometimes called the mother of all Muslims. And doesn't mean they're descended from her, but in, in this sense, this spiritual sense, that she's the first one. Okay, as we mentioned, uh, Khadija then takes Muhammad to her uncle, or perhaps he's a cousin, uh, Waraka ibn Naufal, and he was the Christian, the one who had started to translate the, the Bible into Arabic. Okay, and this is where Waraka reportedly uh, confirms that uh, Muhammad is a prophet, and he is supposed to have said that he wishes he would have lived long enough to stand by Muhammad when the persecution starts. And, and the prophet asks, what, what persecution? What do you mean? So uh, what he's doing is Waraka is prophesying not only his own death, but also the fact that there's going to be persecution, which I mean turns out to be true. He dies shortly thereafter, and so he doesn't get to become one of the early followers. But this is taken as another sign that, at least early on, Christians could recognize that Muhammad was a true messenger. And, you know, <clears throat> Islam is not coming to set up another religion. The idea is this, is this is a message to all the believers and to the people who are not believers. It's all supposed to be one. So it's obvious at the beginning that even Christians who hear this, okay, they realize that this message is for them. Okay, so as we mentioned, Khadija was quite rich, um, but by publicly standing with Muhammad, um, she's going to lose all of her business, and eventually she's going to lose all of her money. Uh, But she spends most of that money uh, supporting the early community of believers, which, of course, they're under great pressure at that time. In fact, there is a saying that says... Uh, quote, Islam did not rise except through the sword of Ali and the wealth of Khadija. So, the, again, the idea, this is all providential. The marriage was, you know, for a purpose. The wealth that she had accumulated was all for a purpose. It was all part of God's perfect purpose. But again, it also supports the idea that it was the wealth of a woman, an independent woman, Uh, which is supporting this Muslim community. Now, certainly the most famous of the children of the Prophet Muhammad and Khadija is their fourth daughter, Fatima. And in fact, she's so important, we're going to have a separate episode about her. We're not going to try and talk about her here. Uh, For now, what we uh, will say is, She was born in the year 605, and this is just five years before the revelation begins. She will live uh, to 27 years of age, and she will die only two months after the prophet. And, of course, she marries Ali, from which the line of descent will come. Okay, so as we said, the the revelations began in the year 610. Uh, We talked about what Khadija's role uh, was at that time. Okay, now... They have another child who was born after that in the year 611, and this is the second son. His name is Abdullah, 
which is also the name of the prophet's father. He's, he's named after him. But like the other sons, he will die in childhood. He's either two or three years old, uh, we think, when he died. So he, he does not live into adulthood. Khadijah herself will die in the year 619, and she's believed to have been 65 years old if we go with the most common dating, uh, the, Sunni, the Sunni dates. This is the same year that Muhammad's uncle, uh, Abu Talib, dies. Uh, he's the father of Ali. He was the protector of, um, of the Prophet Muhammad. He's the one who took him to Syria well before uh, he, he led the caravans. And so that year, 619, is referred to as the year of sorrow because the, the two of them die. Okay, so we're, we're throwing around a lot of dates here. I realize that, and uh, it can get kind of confusing. You know, the dates are not important. The, the, the important thing is the context, what was going on in those dates. So uh, with Khadijah dying in the year 619, this means she lives through about half of the period of uh, Revelation. Okay, so the Quran is revealed over uh, a 22-year period. Uh, she lives through about half of that time, and when she dies, her four daughters were still alive, and of course her two sons had died. So again, um, According to the Sunni tradition, these are all children of Muhammad as well. According to Shia tradition, Fatima was the only the only child of both of them. Okay, uh, Muhammad himself is 50 years old when she dies. Now, now although he will never have uh, another adult child, another child who survives into uh, adulthood, uh, th there still is a lot of time left here. I mean, it's it's not like this is the end of his life. Uh, he's got more years ahead. So the prophet lives for 12 more years, during which time he married 12 more women, and they were all widows except for Aisha, who's probably the most famous of his wives, and, and she's said to have been the favorite among some say that. Uh, he never divorced any of them. Okay, So um, uh, some died before him. Uh, but most of these marriages were political alliances, which was very common at the time. Uh, this was the sort of thing um, that they did. So, for example, uh, Ramla, uh, who, her name is Ramla bint Abi Sufyan, which means she's the daughter of Abu Sufyan, who was the leader of the Quraysh tribe. Now, the Quraysh, of course, it's it's the tribe Muhammad came from, but they were the the enemies. They were the key enemies of the Muslims. This is the, the reason they had to leave Mecca. Uh, but eventually, of course, you know, the um, you know, most of the Quraysh are going to convert to Islam. Those who don't are going to be defeated. Uh, the Muslims will take over. Mecca, and there'll be a, you know peace made between them, and so by marrying the daughter of the person who was the enemy for a long time, this is cementing the peace between them that the state of war is over. Uh, Safia, who is another wife, she was the daughter of a Jewish tribe. This is one of the Jewish tribes that the Muslims defeated at the Battle of the Trench in the year 627. And this is a famous battle where this Jewish tribe, plus the Quraysh and some others, uh, laid siege to Medina. They lost. Eventually, peace is made, and Muhammad marries uh, her, the daughter, the daughter of this leader. Uh, now, Amongst these 12 wives, uh, Muhammad only had children with Khadija, six children with Khadija, and he had one other child, and that was with Maria el Kubtiya, which um, her, her name means Maria the Copt. Obviously, she was a, a Coptic Christian from Egypt, and she was sent to him by a Byzantine official, again, cementing cementing this uh, peace between, I mean, at this time, Coptic Egypt and what was the, the Muslim world. Uh, they had one son. His name was Ibrahim, but he died as, a, as an infant. So again, uh, three sons, none of them 
live to adulthood. Now, in addition to his biological children, uh, the prophet had at least one adopted son, one son who was officially adopted, uh, and that was Zaid, uh, Zaid ibn Harita, who was he was actually a slave of Khadija, and he is said in tradition to have been the third person to convert to Islam. So Khadija is the first, Ali is the second, and uh, Zaid is the third. And the prophet freed him. He couldn't have a Muslim slave. He freed him and adopted him as his own son. Uh, Zaid would go on to become a, a great leader in the Muslim army. But, of course, we don't trace the lineage through an adopted son, through an adopted child. Okay, so that is the situation uh, with the prophet's family, as it will be up until the time in, in which he dies. And as I said, he will be survived only by Fatima, his son-in-law, Ali. He will be survived by other wives, uh, but not by other children. And so when we look at this whole picture, you know, it, it does not seem that producing male heirs and producing a line of descent was extremely important the way it is um, say like in monarchies where this is the huge thing right think of Henry the eighth I mean the idea of you know trying to have a son and what they would go through I mean Henry the eighth is right chopping off women's heads and all this stuff and you know, getting excommunicated from the Catholic Church so he can make sure he has a son to pass on his kingdom to, which he ends up not. Um, but this does not seem to be uh, a, a big issue, not only because of the fact that uh, Muhammad doesn't have uh, more sons, but also we don't hear him talking a lot about it. And this leads to probably the most controversial point in all of Islam, I think, and that is what did or did not the Prophet say about his succession and about his lineage and whether it was to follow in his family or whether there was to be a succession or not. And I mean, if you follow this series, I mean, you know that is the most, the most controversial question, but whatever position we take on it, um, you know, there are uh, supposed hadith that uh, the Shia will point to to say that he did designate Ali as his successor. Uh, but if he did, it was, you know, very, very tangentially. Um, and you, you would think, um, like in a monarchy where it's such, such a huge issue, you would think there would be a lot more said on this particular issue. And there just doesn't seem to be. And just from all that we see, um, that just does not seem to have been such a big issue. So that is the situation uh, with the Prophet's uh, family and uh, where it leaves us. And unfortunately, there will be a lot of conflict. Uh, of course, I mean, it's going to lead to a split. It's going to lead to wars about what this means, which is really unfortunate uh, because what we definitely see from the life of Khadija and her relationship and family with uh, the Prophet is, you know, what's very clear is the uh, important role that she had, uh, about the freedom that she had, her, her importance, her independence as a woman, the respect she was granted, um, the, the liberty that she had, and, I mean, of course, she's remembered for her faith and basically putting her money and her life on the line. And that's really the part that um, should be the thing that we take from this. So uh, with that in mind, that is going to close our discussion here of uh, talking about Khadija, the wife, the first wife of the prophet. Uh, next time, inshallah, we're going to talk about Fatima, the very important daughter uh, from whom a lineage will come and a lot of controversy will come. So we hope that you will join us uh, for that. Uh, until next time, we hope to see you then. Once again, shukran jazilin and ma salama.